Again, our text this morning will be in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 18. If you would stand to honor God's word, as I read for you from 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Again, remember that Peter is writing to believers. He's writing to believers that have been scattered throughout the provinces of what is known today as modern Turkey, throughout the provinces uh, there of Asia Minor. We read beginning in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking, of the, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. If you haven't figured it out, we're working our way through the final verses of Second Peter. These are Peter's final words to his readers. These are perhaps Peter's final words as he would be martyred not long after the writing of these words. And we've noted in these particular verses that there are four commands, there are four expectations that he lays upon all who would read these words if they would show themselves to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We might say, in, effect, in fact, that these are four characteristics of followers of Christ. If you could boil all of the New Testament down into just four simple statements, what does it mean to follow Christ? Peter does a pretty good job of encapsulating it all for us in these four commands. And what does he say? He says, uh, if we were looking at them by way of characteristics, we could say this, are you diligent to be found in Christ spotless, in peace, spotless and blameless? I think we have this for you up on the screen. Okay. We've also seen that we are to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. We are going to look today at uh, asking the question, are you guarding yourself against the error of unprincipled men so as not to fall from your own steadfastness. And then next week, we will close the study by looking at and asking the question, are you growing? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And so if you were just to put those in the form of a question, I might ask you, how are you doing? How would you rate yourself are you diligent? Do you regard the patience of the Lord as salvation? Are you guarding yourself from the error of unprincipled men so that you don't begin to doubt your salvation and shrink back from the Lord? 
And ultimately, are you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, this is what Peter ends the letter with. This is what you should be coming to, these conclusions, as you read this letter. You should have your diary or journal and be saying, okay, God, where do I need to be better in these particular things? Let me also remind you that these exhortations come on the heels of all that Peter has been teaching us about the promises of Christ. And specifically, what promise? The promise that Jesus said, I will come again. And I, I, I'm not a prophet. I don't even pretend to be one, and I don't play one on TV. But I do know we are one day closer to the return of Christ than we were yesterday. And it may be today, it could be next week, it could be 10 years from now, I don't know. But are you ready becomes the question. He is coming again. He's coming again despite the mocking and the judgments of false teachers who think otherwise, which was the question in verse 4, where's the promise of his coming? He's coming again to bring judgment and destruction upon the ungodly, exactly what Peter said in verse 7. He's coming again to bring an end to this fallen, sinful, present heavens and earth, so as to usher in the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells forever. Can you imagine? Righteousness dwelling forever, verse 13. And so... To answer the question of the mockers and the scoffers and the skeptics, why has there been such a long delay in the promise of Christ coming? And we are reminded in verse 9 that the Lord is exercising his patience. That the purpose of the patience of the Lord is so that God may gather all of his chosen to be saved. And they will be saved. And then we notice that Peter has the so what statements. Christ is coming again. Christ is coming in spite of what you hear from false teachers. And so then the question for us is so what? What does that mean to me today? In verse 11, notice what he says. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? And he answers it. In holy conduct and in godliness. And so I could ask the question again, how are you doing in your holy conduct and in your godliness? Because of the promise of Christ to come again, because he's coming to bring judgment on the wicked, because he's coming to usher in this reign of righteousness, how are we to live not in the future but right now in the present? How shall we live in light of the promises of Christ? Well, this brings us to our final verses. We've already considered two of our responses that living in light of the promises of Christ are to push us towards being diligent in our pursuit of spiritual purity to be found, as Peter said, by Christ in peace, spotless and blameless. That ultimately means to be found in the image of Christ. That was verse 14. We saw last week that we are to regard or account, consider the delay in Christ's coming not as a failure on his part, but an expression of patience, his long enduring of sinners through all of these ages, so that for all whom Christ has died, they will all be saved. 
verses 15 and 16. And that brings us now to the third means by which we could say we are to live in light of the promises of Christ's coming. And we call this one the protection of his promise, the protection of his promise in verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Since believers know Christ is returning, not only are they to pursue this life of purity, not only are they to praise the God of patience that has brought them to salvation, but they must live in such a way as to protect themselves from the error, from the truth-undermining error of wicked, unprincipled men. And I submit to you this morning that in verse 17, there are five things we ought to consider if believers would persevere until Christ returns. This is what it means to persevere until Christ returns. And it begins by recognizing the believer's position. We do well to take note of Peter's introduction to this next imperative. He begins by stating both to whom he is addressing and then reminding them of their position before the Lord. Notice what he says, simple words that we might like to pass over, right? You, therefore, beloved. He's not doing this as some introduction to a new letter. He's used some of this same terminology before. He is repetitive because he wants to get it through his readers, into his readers' minds. He's trying to screw these truths down into their minds that while these words may sometimes to us not seem impressive, because they are inspired by the Spirit of God, they are truth that we need to understand. Now, the you there is in what we call the emphatic position in the Greek, original Greek sentence. It begins the sentence. It simply means it stands in the front of the sentence so as to draw the reader's attention. Who had he been talking about in the previous verses? The untaught and the unstable distorters of Scripture. He's no longer talking about people who don't believe in the scriptures. He's not talking about people who twist the truth. He comes back and he says, you, you that I have been speaking of from the very beginning. The word therefore simply points us back to what has already been written. Again, in verse 16, those untaught and unstable perverters of the truth of God. And after Peter's rant concerning those false teachers, he wants his readers now to come back and say, oh, you're talking about me. You're talking about us. And so then we note that Peter once again uses what has become his favorite term of affection for his readers. And that is that term, beloved. I know I have belabored Peter's use of this term seeing that this is the last time that he uses it in the letter, and thus my last time to remind you of it, let me stir your mind by way of reminder that this is not just some casual term of affection. This is reminding the readers, the Spirit reminding us of our firm position before the Lord. The word beloved speaks of this position, our position of being in Christ. It is being used to distinguish believers who trust in the promises 
and the word of God from those who pervert the scriptures. Let me remind you that the word beloved, a nice short definition, means this. Most dearly loved ones. There's no one loved more than the beloved. It's not just saying, I love ice cream. It is, it is saying that I have this one favorite ice cream of ice creams. And that doesn't even work, does it? Because now I'm comparing all of us to ice cream. This is the most loved possession of Peter in this case. But where does he draw this from? Peter has used the term, as we've told you some six times in this letter, four times to speak of all believers in general, once in reference to Paul, and one time, the very first time, if you want to go back and look at it with me in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, he uses it as he remembers back some 30 years prior to something he was blessed and privileged to hear from heaven itself. Just stop and think for a moment what it would be like to have the heavens kind of rolled back and you hear the voice of God speak to this man who's before you who's been talking about all sorts of truths and spiritual truths. And what does he say? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is a title. This is the status. This is the position of Christ before God the Father. He is the beloved son. The term beloved with reference to Christ speaks of the depth and the scope and the width and the wonder of the Father's love for the Son. In John chapter 3, verse 35, we have this statement, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Who could he love more into whom he has given everything to? When we think about the Father's love for the Son, we are immediately struck that it is an eternal love. It is a love without beginning and without end. It is a love that has never, ever once experienced disharmony. It is an infinite love. It is an utterly holy love unlike anything ultimately that we can get our heads wrapped around. God the Father gives this title to God the Son on the Mount of Transfiguration, again saying, this is my beloved Son. There is no animosity. There is no dysfunction in this family. There is no disharmony between the Father and the Son. There is no hesitancy. There is no half-heartedness. There is no doubt. There is no wonder if the Father loves the Son. He's made it absolutely clear. The use of this word beloved then with reference to Christ, as you read it, don't ever forget this is a term of holiness. This is a sacred term. I use it from this pulpit and I don't mean to use it flippantly or lightly. Because I know that it is a holy description. And then if I can just remind you in chapter 3, going back to chapter 3, Peter does something that I think for some at the, at the beginning might have 
been thought unthinkable. He makes the term, he takes this term that he himself heard from heaven that was given with regard to Jesus Christ as the Holy Son of God, and he applies it four times in one chapter to all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that telling you? If you are in Christ, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you recognize yourself to be a sinner and him to be the Savior, you know he died in your place on the cross. He took your sin. He's given you his righteousness. If you know all of that, then you, like Christ are beloved of God make no mistake four times in chapter 3 in verse 1 in verse 8 in verse 14 and now in verse 17 to be beloved is to recognize what Peter began this very letter with back in chapter 1 verse 1 to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. There is no distinction among the redeemed. There is no hierarchy. It is There's no one that's better than the other. We are all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all wicked and wretched and depraved before Christ. But when we come to Christ, we have a new position, a new title, and it is beloved. The beloved. Be beloved then means to know that you are infinitely loved by God. That you are so loved by God that he sent to you his only begotten son to be your savior, to deliver you from the death sentence that your sins deserve, to supply you with, again, his righteousness, so that now when God sees you, what does he see? We always say, well, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's a true statement. But I want you to think about it this way. When he sees you, he sees you as his beloved. He sees you as his beloved. This is the position of the redeemed. By the way, Peter didn't make this up. Peter didn't just say, hey, this sounds good. I'm going to make everybody feel good today and call you beloved, a beloved, beloved. He's not the only one that has said this. Consider as we're going to be getting ready to go into the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Notice how Paul speaks of the believers at Rome. He says, to all who are the what? Beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. He equates the belovedness with being holy ones, the saints, the redeemed. Later in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 12, we find Paul using the very same idea when he says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and what? Beloved. You can say it out loud. It's okay. Holy and what? Beloved. If you are in Christ, this is your title. This is your standing with God, and you ought to be eager then. Why am I being called the beloved? Because I want to be diligent, and I want to be eager to reflect the very character of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Are we not being conformed to his image, according to Romans 8, 28? Well, what does that mean? Well, part of his image, what is the term that God gave from heaven to the disciples? This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, I pray that that would be the title you long to hear too. That God, if he were to open up the heavens right now, that he would say, 
Bill, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we might say, well, it's not because of me, and that's right. He's well pleased with Phil because of the righteousness of Christ. Because of the righteousness of Christ. So I ask you, are you among the beloved of God? Have you come to know Christ by faith to be your Savior and Lord? Because this is the position that Peter is stressing here in this text. You, therefore, beloved, understand your position because I'm about to lay something on you that's heavy. I'm about to give you a task that is going to overwhelm you at times. And if you do not know your standing with God, you will fail and fall every time. And so this brings us to our second consideration. Not only have we looked in at the believer's position, but notice the believer's provision. He says, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand. Yes, I'm picking this verse apart. There's so much here for us. Here, Peter's referring to the danger that is posed by false teachers. In all of chapter 2, in the first half of chapter 3, Peter has been giving believers warning after warning concerning the nature and the content and the conduct of false teachers. And in chapter 2 alone, there are no less than two dozen such descriptions that are given to believers by which we are to be able to identify false teachers. Yeah, they're all up there. I'll just run through them. Just consider this. Why do I say this? Knowing this beforehand. And what has Peter done? He's told you beforehand that false teachers introduce destructive heresies into the church, that they deny the master who bought them, that they desire and obtain many who will follow their ways, that they pursue their sensuality, they are greedy, they exploit others, they indulge in their flesh, they despise authority, they are daring and self-willed, they are like unreasoning animals, they suffer wrong, that is, they suffer punishment for their wrongdoing, they count it as a pleasure to do evil in the daytime. They don't even hide it anymore. They, uh, revel, uh, they revel or delight in their deceptions. They carouse. What's a word like this? They carouse in the church. They're found in the body of Christ. They have eyes full of adultery. They entice unstable souls. They forsake the right way. They love the wages of righteousness. They speak arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires. They promise freedom in all of their perversity. Hey, just do whatever you want. We're giving you liberty and license. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. They are entangled in the defilements of this world, and they have turned away from the holy commandment. So there's a list for you. You can take that list, and you can compare it to false teachers, and you will see that one or more or five or ten of these or all 24 may be present. By telling his readers that they know this, how false teachers operate beforehand, Peter is using a principle here that we've been doing as we preach through this is the principle of reminder and repetition. I'm going to tell you this over and over again because I want it to stick. That's the idea. How many times do you have to teach your child to say thank you before they actually get it, right? You say, what do you say? Thank you. What do you say? Thank you. What? And then the one day comes when they're given something and they say thank you without even being told. And you're like, oh, it's stuck. That's what Peter's doing. 
He says I, in chapter 1, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. In chapter 3, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. Beloved, he does this beforehand because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He is trying to arm you against something that's deadly, something that's dangerous, something that will impact any local church if they're not careful. Believers are provided with the knowledge concerning false teachers beforehand. Now, the word beforehand is a very familiar Greek word. You've heard it, I'm sure. It's actually pronounced prognosko, but we get our English word prognosis from it. How many of you have had a prognosis before? Where do you usually get a prognosis? From the person you don't want to hear the prognosis from, unless it's a good thing. You hear it from the doctor. The, the word prognosis literally means to know beforehand. Gnosis is knowledge, pro is before, so prognosis, to know beforehand. With a prognosis, a prior knowledge, a person is able, enabled, to be ready for some predicted danger. Again, when the doctor gives a prognosis, what's the purpose of it? Well, here's the prognosis, and so that's going to lead to treatments A, B, and C so that we can conquer this sickness or this disease. Well, what's Peter done? He says, I've given you a prognosis. And what is the prognosis? And here it is. There will be found in the church untaught, and unstable men, in verse, that's verse 16, and in verse 17 he says they're actually unprincipled. That word unprincipled means not upright, meaning not that they're unrighteous, they're lawless, they're wicked, who distort the truth of God's word. Why would you distort God's word? Why would you want to distort God's word? To satisfy your own perverse the reason why you twist God's word is to justify some behavior, some action of living that you know otherwise God would say that's wrong. What concerns Peter is that such false teachers actually use the scriptures. They take things out of context. They might redefine terms in order to support their perverted talk about passages in the scripture that so clearly, I mean, I cannot believe you, the gymnastics you have to play to try to get around the verses that clearly speak against homosexuality. Oh, well, that word can mean this and that, and so that, why, do you, why are you doing that? So you can justify immoral behavior. Beloved, this is a natural tendency in fallen sinners. You know, you and I are very capable of reading our Bibles and trying to twist something so as to justify, well, that doesn't mean, that doesn't apply to me. It certainly applies to the person sitting across the aisle from me in church right now, but it doesn't apply to me. We seek to avoid any truth that would condemn our conduct by twisting it. This is what Jesus taught would happen. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, listen to the words of Jesus. This is the judgment. That the light, truth, has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, hates the truth, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why would you be afraid of your deeds being exposed? Two reasons. One, shame. Two, I got to stop. Jesus goes on, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as being 
brought, brought out from God himself. And because false teachers can push the truth to appeal to the senses and the flesh, false teachers have absolutely no problem bringing in a big crowd, do they not? They can do that because they surround themselves with people who want to have their ears tickled, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Many churches have false teachers who know how to mix just enough truth with their error to deceive a congregation leading people down a path of destruction. And Peter has come along and said this to his readers, now to us, I've told you what? Beforehand. You have no excuse to fall into the trap. I have given you the prognosis. We're reminded that scripture has some very hard things to understand, things that confront the mainstream ideas of a culture. Most people believe that people are born innocent. Haven't you heard that? Most people are born innocent. We're essentially good at our core. Show me in the Bible one verse that says we're essentially good at birth. I read verses that in sin my mother conceived me. I read, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And verse after verse that we read that we are utterly lost, dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are unable and even unwilling to come to Christ to be saved. And so the false teachers have to do something. They have to play to human pride, calling sin something other than what it is. Let's redefine it. It's just a problem. We can take care of a problem. I've got a solution the problem. You see, when we deal with sin, there's only one solution, one remedy, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem, well, let's come at it. You can probably have a disease and go to ten different doctors and get ten different, you know, ways to treat it. Not so with sin. Not so with sin. If it's just a problem that we all deal with from time to time, it's just a problem that most of us as humans have, so it's not so bad as to deserve the wrath of God, well then I can just continue on in my sin. It goes against human nature as well to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Have you ever done that one? How can you say? How can you be so narrow-minded? How can you be so sure that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Because Jesus, the Son of God, said so. Well, that's just an interpretation. No, it's what he said. Take it up with him. Jesus is the only way to heaven. We proclaim that. It goes against all who follow other religions, who, who regardless of how sincere they might be, they are all destined to hell because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, not one, will come to the Father except through me. It is by grace Christ alone. And what of repentance? You need to repent of your sin. Now just go up to people, I dare you, and say to them, hey, repent of your sins. Repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. What kind of looks are you getting? Most people recoil at the thought that we must repent of our sins and our sinfulness and, and do what? Because repentance means a complete turnaround and then I must Submit, submit's a dirty word. Submit myself to the Lord Jesus Christ as, as Lord and Master. 
the false teachers proclaim that the grace of God allows him to actually wink at sin. And that he didn't send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. This is a big teaching that's getting more and more. I mean, it's always been around, but it's coming back. That Jesus wasn't sent to actually save anybody. He's just going to help you fulfill your full potential if you just save yourself. He made it possible to proclaim that Jesus demands all our hearts, all our minds, all our soul, all our strength, all that we are. Well, you're legalistic. You're demeaning the grace of God. No, we're not. We exalt the grace of God that saves sinners, wretches like us. The prognosis of Peter reminds us of the pushback that will come from preachers, if you want to call them that, that promote, uh, well, let me, let me rephrase it. Peter's giving us this prognosis of the pushback that will come to preachers of the word of God who promote a purity of life that rejects homosexuality, that rejects sex side of marriage, that, re that rejects transgenderism, that rejects the mutilation of children both in the womb and outside of the womb. We reject any form of gender reassignment therapies and surgeries that can never change the gender for which God has assigned us. The false teachers will promote their justifications as to why it's wrong to teach that men and women have complementary yet very distinct different roles in the home and in the church. And Peter comes along and says, church, you have been told beforehand. And yet what are most churches doing? Ignoring Peter warns the beloved, those who share the title of Christ himself. He tells and warns the saints, the faithful, uh, uh, the faithful ones against such teachers and their destructive heresies. And like a parent who has lived and seen destructive behavior and its consequences, warning the child against running into the street, being careful of the friends that they keep, of the dangers of drugs and sexual immorality, Peter sets the stage to exhort believers now with how they ought to act, but he begins by reminding, I've told you this beforehand. I've told you who you are in Christ. You are the beloved. And this leads us to the third consideration, believer's caution. Believers' precaution. Throughout these messages on Peter's final words to his readers, I've pointed out there's that there's a connection between our creed and our conduct of what we say we believe and our actual behavior. And notice how Peter makes this connection for us between what we know beforehand and now how we live. He says, knowing this beforehand, there's what we believe, be on your guard. Make sure your life matches up. The known danger and now the duty that is expected as a result of that knowledge go together. Believers are to beware of false teachers. You ever see the sign, beware of dog? What do you want to do? Yeah, you, if you don't hear anything, you might go up and try to look. Gone up to one of those signs and thought, well, that's not 
big deal. I don't hear anything. And then you hear a dog that's probably the size of Mount Everest and a bark that just makes the hair on your head stand up. And you're like, okay, I'm not going any further. Beware of false teachers. The command says be on your guard. It means to keep yourself protected from danger. It means to take every precaution against the danger. When I care for my honeybees, I have to take precautions. I wear a suit that zips up and keeps me all protected. I wear gloves that allow me to touch everything and have bees all over my hands, but if one gets a little too frisky, it wasn't going to hurt. I'll use smoke to help calm the bees. I take every precaution. And this is the idea. Take every precaution so as not to be harmed, not to be influenced, not to be sucked in, not to be enticed, not to entertain the destructive heresy that comes from false teachers. This is the command. Be on your guard. It is in the present tense, if you'll notice. It's not looking to the past. It says, be on your guard. And that means, could be translated, guard and keep on guarding yourselves. I've added another word. It says, be on your guard, but it's literally because of the way it's constructed in the Greek. Be on your guard. Be on guard yourselves. This is your duty. It is something that you're supposed to do. It's not just talking about, which is true, that God gives us protection. He holds us in his hand, and no one will ever snatch us out of his hand. We know that. But now Peter's saying, the way you live your life ought to reflect that you have taken every precaution against the heresies. This is the expectation made on all believers. You say, but wait, 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 Pastor. I'm supposed to guard myself from the false teachers? Isn't that something the elders are supposed to do for the congregation? We've got a couple of guys that are going through. Aren't the elders? I mean, uh, Titus 1.9, the elders are to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians, uh, to the, the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, verses 28 through 31, he's speaking to the elders here. So congregation, you're like, oh, we're off the hook. To the elders, he says, be on guard for yourselves. Sounds like what we just read, right? And for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He's laying it on thick for these, these elders. I know that after my departure, what? Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Their destructive heresies will come into the church. Verse 30, and from among your own selves, men will arise. They're in the church. And what are they doing? They're speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, Paul says, be on the alert. Yes, elders who want to lead their congregations in the way of the truth must respond to, must rebuke deviations from God's word. But notice the call of Peter in our text. 
is not made to elders. In, tap, in his first letter, he spoke to the elders to do what they're supposed to do. But now this is the call to each one of us in this room, in this very moment. The call is to be alert to the possibility of being wrongly influenced and fall prey to false teaching. Like the noble-minded Bereans of Acts 17.11 who received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so, you and I are expected to watch out for false teaching that comes not only from without, but from within. This is the precaution of believers, and it leads us to our fourth consideration, the believer's peril. The believer's peril. While we've been speaking about it all along, Peter next identifies for his readers what is the actual danger, the danger that we face. He says, so that. Here's the the purpose, right? Why are we to be on guard for ourselves? So that you, beloved, are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. In other words, if believers are to persevere They must guard themselves from the many spiritual errors of the day. If believers are not careful, Peter tells us that they too can be, he uses this phrase, carried away. You kind of get caught up in the flow. It all starts sounding really good, but you're not being discerning, and you fall into error. And the idea really is that of exposure and influence. What is influencing I have no qualms in telling you that if you're uh, reading certain authors, you are in danger of being carried away. Whether it's Joel Osteen or Sarah Young or whoever it might be, and if you don't know, you're like, oh, wait, I've, I've read some of those books. Be careful, because you could be easily carried away. Believers are to be careful of the dangers of being led astray from the right path by keeping close company or any company with false teachers. This calls believers to make sure, make sure they know who you're listening. Who are you listening to? What are you listening to? What are you reading? We live in what we call the information age. I am amazed. When I first started as a pastor, I was told, you're going to need, and this is back in, in 88, 1988. Can you believe it? Back that far. Uh, and I was told, you know, you're going to need about twenty to $25,000 in 1988 money to have a library that has all the books that you need. Do you know that for just a couple thousand dollars, I can have access to all those books in the information age? I can just call them up on the Internet. A lot of them are free now that you could only get, uh, you know, in some old copy, and it would cost you a million dollars. I can have all of that right now, and we can have all sorts of information. Some time ago, I was reading the book of Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel's weird. There's opening chapters and eyes and wheels and all this stuff. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look up. I, I actually thought, I want to see if there's an, a, a, an artist's depiction of this. How hard could that be? I got all sorts of sites about UFOs and that Ezekiel's talking about these different UFOs. And I'm thinking, whoa. You see, the problem with the information age, a time in history where there's so much information available at our fingertips, the only problem is not all the information is right. So much of it is wrong, particularly as it relates to God and his word. And so, according to the Bible, 
we find that there are many in the church that love Athena. There's a lot of people that like Athena. Oh, let's just have all sorts of, you know, things coming into the church. Let's just be open-minded about all these various things. Israel was no different. In Jeremiah 5.31, listen to what Jeremiah writes. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. That's what it says. Let, Let me read that again. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people, says the Lord, love it so. And then he says, but what will you do at the end of it? Or as the ESV says, what will you do when the end comes? Because you've been listening to the false prophets. You've been following those who have been following their own authority. Love from the pope to the pastors to the pundits, believers must test all things by one standard, the word of God, not from what sounds best to them, but from a faithful study of God's word. We proclaim this as sola scriptura, scripture alone. And Peter goes on to identify for us the propagators of such peril. They are, you notice it says they are, the, it's the error of unprincipled men. These are those who teach things that are contrary to God's word. They speak error. That word error simply means it's fraudulent. It means that it's deceptive. It's a delusion. It it speaks of that which is straying from what is right or true, or we might say orthodox. To teach as do the Jehovah's Witness, the heresy of Arianism, which says that Jesus was not truly divine, that Jesus was not uncreated and eternal God, but rather was the first and highest order of God's created beings, that's not a matter of one's own interpretation. No, such a teaching is an error of the person of Christ being truly God and truly man. Such are the vain imaginations of men, and Peter calls this error of the error of unprincipled men. That is, persons who have no law to govern their behavior but their own. They are driven by their own lust. If it feels good to them, they do it. Rather than, according to verse 16, that such false teachers are headed for destruction or eternal ruin, they, they don't see that. In chapter 2, Paul uh, Peter spoke of in terms of their coming destruction. How many times? Let me remind you. All right? He does it five times. In chapter 2, five times, he says, in chapter 2, verse 1, their denial of the master will bring, he says, swift destruction upon themselves. In chapter 2, verse 3, their destruction is not asleep, that it is coming. In chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In verse 12, we learn that they will be destroyed, literally put down like unreasoning animals. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, we find that there is reserved for them the black darkness. Do you want to be influenced by these people? The peril for believers is that false teachers crept into Christendom. And so Peter has to say to us, the Spirit says to us, not simply to accept anything that goes on in the church. We are to watch carefully both the character as well as the teaching of those whom we follow. 
if they are headed for destruction, why would any believer want to have anything to do with them? Believers are to be on guard, take every precaution against uh, being influenced by doctrinal error, while nothing replaces the constant and thorough reading of the word of God. Be in the word of God. That is what combats false teaching. I would recommend that you pick up some solid additional books that will help ground you in doctrinal truth. Now, I'm not going to be putting uh, them on display right now, but on Thursday night, I'll share some books that you ought to pick up, books that will be helpful for you that brightly reflect the teachings and truths of God's word so that you read them. Such is a good way to take precautions against the peril of false teachers. We want to be those who are, in the words of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. But this brings us to our final consideration, the price, the believer's price. What happens if a believer fails to recognize the error? I mean, there should be a sense, even as we come right now, oh my word, this is dangerous. What you're talking to us about, Pastor, this is, this is a matter of spiritual health, of spiritual life and death. Is that what we're talking about? What if a believer fails to recognize the peril and does not take the proper precautions and does not consider what he has been told beforehand? In short, I submit to you, he may begin to doubt his position as beloved. He may begin to doubt his standing with Christ. The price a believer pays for being negligent in his study and commitment to God's word, the price that he pays for allowing the influences of false teaching to guide his thinking is summed up in the final words of verse 17, and fall from your own steadfastness. Now, I want to be very clear here. Peter's not talking about losing your salvation. The idea of uh, uh, and fall from your own steadfastness is not talking about the loss of your salvation. How do we know this? Because the context in which Peter is speaking, go back to the beginning of the verse, is to the you who have faith, to the beloved who have a standing. So what Peter is concerned about is that if a believer allows and scripturalizes false teachers to catch them up and carry them away, the result is not the loss of salvation, but rather falling from their own steadfastness. The word steadfastness here speaks of firmness. It means to be firmly grounded. It means to be unshakable. And I imagine you know, everyone here has a testimony of a time in their, in their life walking with Christ. They're like, am I really saved? And depending on who you're listening to, you could really be shaken. But you've got to go back to the word of God. And what does the word God say. The word steadfastness is the opposite of the word unstable that Peter used in verse 16 to describe false teachers and believers. Peter's concern is that his readers might, not that, not that they might lose their salvation, but they, being under the influence of these teachers, might slip in their doctrinal stability and therefore lose confidence in the truth lose confidence in the fact that Christ is coming again. And then what are they going to do? They're going to shrink up, shrink away. They're not going to talk about Christ. The enemy has put them on the proverbial sidelines. 
You see, to be firmly grounded in the truth is not simply knowing the truth, but it is living the truth. To lose your steadfastness or resolve because of being under the spell of false teaching will cause you to shrink back and not be diligent in your faith. Or in the words of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, maybe you've heard these a few times, you will fail to supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. You will fail in those things. And why are those things so important? How are such things manifestations of what Peter now says is the steadfastness that he doesn't want you to fall away from? Well, he's already told us beforehand in in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, being useful and fruitful in the knowledge of Christ is what brings to your heart steadfastness. That's when you know I'm saved. You can say that. And he confirms it in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never what? Stumble. Now he's saying it, you know, a different way. You will never lose your steadfastness. You will experience steadfastness. You will be firmly grounded in those things that bring to your heart the assurance of salvation. So I ask you, do you want to experience steadfastness? Then know and obey the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in addition to those moral qualities of Christ that I just read up from verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1, we are also to practice being diligent to be found by Christ in peace, spotless and blameless before the coming of our Savior striving to live that holy, God-pleasing life and all that we do. We need to be resolved to practice regarding the patience of the Lord as salvation, thanking him that we've been saved and knowing that he's giving us time to proclaim the gospel for others to be saved. And then we recognize to be resolved to be on our guard, knowing that false teachers are not only out there, but they masquerade within the church seeking to discourage and dissuade you from knowing and practicing the truth so that you will not be moved or crushed by the grace of God made clear to you. Father God, we thank you for the challenge that we have been given from your word. Help us to be a people who are on guard, who take all the necessary precautions that we might not fall prey to the teaching and influence of false teachers. Father, I pray that we would be a people of the book, a people who long to communicate with one another the things that we're learning so that they can be corrected if they're wrong, that they might be an encouragement to those if they're right according to your word. Father, we also pray for those who have yet to come to know Christ, for we recognize this morning that if you do not know Christ, then none of these things really apply. I pray, Father God, for the souls of those who need to bow the knee and confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. We pray, Father God, that we would recognize, that we would all recognize that you are the sovereign God, you have ordained all things, that you have brought us to this very time to be reminded of these truths, to protect ourselves, to be reminded of these truths, to be brought to 
to yourself if we do not yet know you. Father God, I pray that we would be a people who are on guard and ready to proclaim the gospel in its purity. For we ask and pray this in Jesus' name.